Well, g'day. I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. And I'm joined in the studio by one of the most influential public intellectuals in the social sciences today. Bruno Latour is a French philosopher, sociologist, and anthropologist, the prize-winning author of multiple works on the intersection between science and society. Professor of Sciences at Sciences Po in Paris, where he's the director of the Media Lab. He's also a centennial professor in the Department of Sociology at the London School of Economics. And the most recent of his 13 books is An Inquiry into Modes of Existence, published by Harvard University Press. Bruno joins us at the University of Melbourne as a keynote speaker at the Performance Climates 2016 conference. Bruno, welcome. Thank you. And from that conference, I'm also joined by two distinguished Australian colleagues. Professor Rachel Fencham is head of the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. She's a dance and theatre scholar and one of the key organisers behind Performance Climates 2016. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. And also in the studio is Clive Hamilton. Clive is a prominent Australian author and public intellectual. He's Professor of Public Ethics at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics, a joint centre of Charles Sturt University and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Clive. Thanks, Glenn. So all of our guests are participants in the Performance Climates 2016 conference, an event partly inspired by the need for new thinking about a perennial wicked problem of public policy, and that is climate change. And to start the conference, the first major event was a lecture delivered by Bruno Latour. Bruno, an extraordinary lecture. The participants were hanging from the rafters in the biggest lecture theatre in this university, with a couple of hundred more tuned in from a neighbouring lecture theatre. So, research published in Science earlier this year argues that human environmental impact has pushed the world into a period called the Anthropocene referring to a geological age where the effects of human activity now have material effects in the world as we measure it. Bruno, in your lecture, you talked about this categorisation and the key role of art, and particularly performance art, as a way to interrogate climate change. So does the evidence persuade you that environmental impact has pushed us into a new geological era? Well, the evidence is fairly uh, solid, and uh, Clive Hamilton here has pushed the view of the evidence uh, a little further by adding that it's actually the characteristics of the Anthropocene has to be understood as an Earth system modification. So it's not an environment question. It's not a question of human modifying uh, their environment. It's human modifying the Earth system. And the paper I mentioned yesterday is the latest one in science, and it's interesting that it's in science because it's an important journal, of course, uh, and it's also a very long paper. It's a 15-page paper, and it has this whole committee in charge of a decision about the Anthropocene signing. And in this committee, there are historians of science, philosophers, as well as stratigraphers, geologists, and climate scientists. So it's a very interesting mix of discipline itself. Of course, they don't make a decision because it's not their duty. Their duty is to prepare the decision for other committee. It's a very complex process. But I think no one of us, uh, and especially not me, <laughs> has any sort of way of double-guessing what the scientists themselves are doing. And it's probably, uh, according to historian of science and uh, many people who follow the literature, the most sturdy 
fact of science, of natural history, if you want. It comes from many, many disciplines, and it comes from stratigraphy, so it's a very interesting discipline itself. It's not the one you would mention as a sort of basic uh, science discipline. It's an interesting discipline. It's natural history discipline, in a way. Very traditional one in some ways, and very advanced in another. So, yes, I think we should start from the idea that we are in the Anthropocene. Now, I also said that we need another word, more political, and that's why I propose new climatic regime to, to sort of uh, get the argument away from geologists and more in our own hands, so to speak. And your keynote advanced a very intriguing argument about rights, that each of the core elements of climate, the soil, the oceans, the atmosphere, should have a voice in what you call the parliament of things, and so influence policy outcomes in nations and states. This is a way to give objects voice in quite a different political discourse. Can you say a little about where this idea of the Parliament of Things came from? Well, actually, it started here in this campus uh, in 88 when I was writing uh, We Have Never Been Modern. And and the the argument is fairly simple, is that we have a political process to represent human, which is, as you know yourself, a long process of elaboration of ideas about representation of citizen and the notion of democracy and so on. But this is only half of the story, especially at the time of the Anthropocene. And I wrote this Parliament of Thing argument long before I knew anything about the Anthropocene. And we, for that, we have absolutely no political process to speak of. So we don't know how to represent non-human. This is why performance is so important, because we need, before we have a politics, we need a poetics. And the poetics is essential to begin to think of what it means to represent the thing with which we are actually dealing with, the forest in Tasmania, the soil in Australia, or the climate. And all of that has to be represented, but there is no political theory for that. So this is why we need to find them out. <laughs> so <laughs> so a, political, a political theory that focuses on objects changes fundamentally the discourse. Yes, but we are no longer object in the traditional political or philosophical sense because the divide was subject-object. This is what the whole Western philosophy is about. But I think we should uh, work out on two sides. The subject is not a subject anymore, and the object is not an object anymore. At least not an object of nature, which would be ridiculous to think that the trees themselves have uh, standing. But when you begin to think that we are not just objects, we are agents, we have an agency, and we share some of this agency. And as we discussed for many times with Clive, it's a very complex sharing of agency because we gain agency and we lose agency simultaneously, we, the humans. We have to find other ways to think about it. And before we can have a philosophy of it, you need to have a theater of it, the dance of it, uh, all the um, sort of uh, resources that only the arts uh, historically have always given. I mean, this is in, already in Plato, in the very idea of having a political agora, by definition, needs a poetics long, long, long before you can imagine a more abstract political theory. So this is why I'm here. <laughs> Okay, so taking the poetics angle, Rachel, the theme of the conference is indeed about the way art and performance might interrogate an important question, like a new climatic regime. Can you tell us something about the thinking that frames the conference and the messages that are coming through? The conference, I think, starts with some of the questions that Bruno's been asking in his keynote, which really go beyond just the question of representation. So, if we wanted to give an example or maybe an Australian example of where a representation maybe leads to action and political 
awareness, one might go back to the Franklin Dam dispute in Tasmania, the photographs of those gorgeous Franklin River gorges, um, and that they can mobilise certain kinds of attachments and notions of what, if you like, it might be to have a wilderness that one would wish to protect. But I think even in Bruno's terms, that would be old politics. It's a kind of politics that's more static. Whereas performances where, in fact, the tree, the river, um, the ocean, um, the mountain is something that has an agency and is, in his term, speaks. Um, and therefore, the human is less powerful. And what performance enables you to do, I think, is create very complex mise-en-scene, you know, a, a world in which many actors play multiple parts. It also enables you to move around an event whether it's a, a protest event or whether it's a piece of theatre, and see it from different perspectives. And the other thing I would bring into performance, as much as it's a spatial form, it's a temporal form. So again, instead of an instant that might shock or alert a political awareness, there's a, a time that will elapse in the experience both of planetary change or environmental change that also enables us humans much kind of more finite maybe in the ways in which we perceive things to allow that durational aspect, if you like, to impact on how we might feel about something and then how we might mobilise our thoughts around something and not just to do it alone but with others. So that's a bit of a complex scenario to set out but I think those are the kind of very many perspectives that people at the conference will be trying to address. Clive? It's very interesting what you say, Rachel, because... One of the metaphors that's been mobilised by me and others in order to try and get a sense of what the Anthropocene means is um, the notion which is uh, a very modern notion and which really structures the way we think about the world, we Westerners, let's say, with our, our naturalist uh, ontology, is that we humans are players who move across the stage, you know, all the world's a stage, but the stage and the, you talked about the mise-en-scene and the backdrop to our lives is really uh, uh, provided by the natural world, which is inert and passive. It's the, it's, it's the background to how we act as social-only beings, to use Bruno's phrase. And what uh, some of us are saying now is that the Anthropocene has kind of inverted this, that suddenly the inert and passive backdrop to the social play which we humans uh, participate in has become an active player in our lives. It's no longer just sitting back there kind of um, highlighting what we do or providing the resources and so on, but it's actually now a player itself, an extraordinarily powerful and, and in a way mysterious player. In fact, we're discovering that it's more powerful than we are. And so Bruno talked about this very strange situation we're in where human beings have never been more powerful and yet, on the other hand, uh, that over which we want to exert our power has been roused from its slumber, the earth, which is now uh, a much more active agent which jeopardises our, our very existence. So we're in this strange, you know, I, I hasten, uh, uh, regret to use the word postmodern, but uh, this situation which is so beyond our understanding that we, I think it will take us a long time to really try and grasp what the new reality, the new ontology is. Clive, one of the great influences on Bruno in thinking about the Anthropocene was your book, Requiem for a Species, which I've heard 
Bruno talk about it as a, a very important starting part of the conversation. In your most recent blogs, you've begun to sort of offer both hope and despair or uh, hope and concern, maybe more accurately. On the one hand, you see plenty of evidence from CO2 levels in the atmosphere that keep you worried. On the other hand, you start to see at least glimpses in the way that governments have come together, and particularly at the Paris conference last year, to try and address this and rebalance. Where's your thinking in the years since uh, Requiem was published? Well, <laughs> he, he had one blog of hope. That's true. Well, <laughs> maybe I got a bit carried away by being at uh, Paris, which had extraordinary kind of atmospherics. Yeah. I mean, it was unlike Great performance. Yeah, it was unlike every other conference of the parties, and I think everyone who'd been to a few of them got there and thought, "Hey, all the others have been, you know, racked by this fractiousness and you know attacks and splits and." this extraordinary, if justified, refusal of developing countries to take on any responsibility until rich countries do what they should do, which I always thought was a perfectly justifiable position. And yet now we saw um, a really radical change. There really was, for the first time, I don't want to overstate it, but a sense of you know, we we are all in this thing together. This is a very serious threat to every being on the planet And, of course, fundamental to that was the role of China. I mean, China probably now leads the world. Uh, We can't uh, any longer in Australia, as we do, and in the US, say, well, you know, look at those Chinese. They build a coal-fired power plant every week. We're not going to do anything. Now China has, has said the Chinese Communist Party, the leadership has said this is a very severe threat to our mandate of heaven, if you like. If we can't get the environment right, then, you know, we're done for. And so the Chinese have, have really become very serious about this. And so I think that does change the geopolitics of, of climate change. And I always think in terms of the curves, that is the carbon budget and how soon we will reach the peak of global emissions and how fast thereafter emissions will decline. They're the two critical numbers. How soon? 2020, 2022, 2030. Um, 2030 will be catastrophic that emissions will reach their peak and how quickly they will decline globally thereafter at 4%, 5%, 6%. They're the numbers. And for the first time, I thought, well, there is a glimmer of hope here that we might limit warming to, say, three degrees. I mean, three degrees will be very bad. Don't get me wrong. Very bad. Three is enormous, yeah. Yes. But um, maybe it's not going to be four degrees or five degrees, which, you know, was kind of the assumption based on the numbers of requiem for a species. And that really was terrifying. And the argument, which I think perhaps Bruno... I got it, yes. He got it. <laughs> I'm impressed by the argument of eight degrees at some point in your... Well, in your and it mean, was, this was terrifying. And, but the say. essential uh, ideological and emotional message is give up hope. Because hope was a delusion. Hope that, you know, we could still have our utopia, that we could tackle climate change and still have endless economic growth and we'll all be happy and prosperous. Forget it. And I still say forget it. Uh, but, you know, there is, a, there is a spark at least that the global community might start responding in a way that stops us going to the worst possible scenario. Bruno, you not only paid close attention to Paris, you did something quite extraordinary. You did a pre-enactment. You did a simulation of Paris with uh, several hundred people. Can you tell us a little about that and what you learned from it? Well, as you know, kids always, uh, student, um, I mean, always do um, United Nations style of negotiation as a training exercise. So we use this format 
but we were more ambitious and we wanted precisely to test the Parliament of Things as a possibility. So what we did was to add to the nation state the one who are blocked usually and stuck with the notion of sovereignty. We added the representative of forces of nature and the forces of economy. So, so that you, you, you had a representative of the uh, United States and Australia, and you had the representative uh, delegation of the ocean and soil and atmosphere, and, which is very important, the representative of the carbon industry and mining and uh, finance. So you, you could begin to have territory against territory, sovereignty against sovereignty, and in many ways what is called the economic powers are actually a territory except it's rarely drawn because we don't know what, uh, finally, if we take the oil industry, it is a territory. It occupies a land grab, a very important one, but it has no sort of border and it impinges on the authority of the other uh, sovereign. And it's the same for the ocean. So what we tested is the way in which a delegation, uh, it's of course a simulation, it's not a, a real um, size, but since it was six months before the real uh, conference, and it was also orchestrated by the lady who was in charge of the real conference, Laurence Tubiana, with my colleague in Sciences Po. We had a nice uh, sort of, uh, uh, very, how, how could I say that? It was fake, but it was true in a way. And in many ways, uh, the students certainly took it completely seriously, and uh, they were very happy to represent the ocean of the industry of oil against the idea that you have always the ocean I would, as, as Clive said, as sort of backdrop of political activity. Here, they were not in the backdrop. They were there. They were there as a delegation, equal to all the delegation, and speaking in the name of a quasi-sovereignty, a sovereignty which is not there yet in law and certainly not in political philosophy, but it will be there in a few uh, <laughs> decades. <laughs> uh, it's obvious that there will be already some sort of sovereignty. A sovereignty which is already in... in, in you recognize it. You recognize it in uh, the Pope encyclic, why not? In Laudato Si, start with the recognition on the earth that governs us. You recognize it in some trend of a Gaia argument, which is somehow a political entity as well as a scientific entity. So th there is everywhere, everyone knows that... Uh, the sovereignty is actually uh, going on, going out, especially because of a very important link in Australia as well as everywhere between refugees and climate, which are two of the elements which are not necessarily well taken in by borders, yet people want protection. Yet there is no, as I said yesterday, there is no planet corresponding to the ideal of the globe. So the whole political philosophy and the whole uh, set of terms we had to talk about Politics basically is changing, and that I think is, in a way, a way to say this is an interesting moment. How uh, did the how did the pre-enactment compared with the reality of COP fifteen? In fact, it was not that different because uh, if there was some positive aspect to the real one, which is the decision that uh, Clive witnesses like me in Paris, it was also because everyone recognized this sort of quasi-sovereign coming in, so to speak which is, I mean, jokingly, I say this is what President Hollande said when he said, long live the planet. But it's, it is something of that sort. That is, sovereignty is there, but state recognized there was something else going on, overlapping type of sovereignty. Now, of course, it's not yet incarnated by any sort of state, and there will never be a super state of ecological <laughs> representative. But it's no longer the fact that you can have United States 
side by side with Australia and Canada. It's something else. Obviously, they share much more. So the great challenge is to, in political philosophy as well as in art, is how do we present those geopolitical maps? Because they, they are overlapping, but they are not overlapping like uh, we are used to it. And, and that's a big challenge for political theorists. It's a great challenge for cartography. It's a great challenge for artists as well. How do we present overlapping sovereignties? Rachel, the simulation that Bruno's just described is one of the themes of the conference, which carries an assumption that performance is a really powerful way to integrate bodies of knowledge around and interrogate new areas. How is the conference going to use the experience of Paris to investigate this question of climate futures? I think I'll just might refer to an example that came from this morning's uh, keynote when Richard Franklin, um, Indigenous elder and um, the director of the Willen Centre at the university was speaking this morning. And he, I think, gave us a kind of physical and performative demonstration of some of the ways which overlapping sovereignties exist for Indigenous people in this country. So, you know, it is their land and they've lived here for 70,000 years and someone at the back of the lecture theatre had to put up their hand and someone at the front of the lecture theatre had to put up their hand. He said, OK, this is the 70,000 years. And then at which point on a, on a gestural line would you say is the 220 years in which white settlement has been in this country? And, of course, it's an infinitesimal distance <laughs> between 70,000 and what 220 years is. And he said, and look what you've done to this land, you know, in this 220 years. So I think that kind of simulation, if you like, or, or physicalization of things that are very hard to understand, what is time, the durational time of this earth, this landscape in particular in Australia, and of the impact of two different types of sovereignty, two co competing types of sovereignty, uh, and to see them actually sort of physically played out is a way for people to actually rethink, well, where do we stand on that spectrum, you know, and how do we engage with this question? So but, that but what was one really, example. I think, really new and specific in those years, really, is that uh, a position like that we heard this morning would not look anymore like something talking about the past, but it's also talking about something which is the present. Because we begin, we the Westerners were before looking either with disdain or with respect to the elders' tradition, are ourselves in a situation where the land is actually uh, taken under our feet. So the land grab, which is, I think, a very important moment for anthropology and art and a lot of things in political theory as well, we, we begin to share the idea of a land grab being taken by other forces uh, with people who would before had been a sort of in, in a position of uh, disdain and respect simultaneously. Mm. So now we, mm. we share, we, mm. we begin to ask, how did you do it? Mm. How did you do it to last all mm. these years? Mm. How, uh, because maybe we, 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 we need to learn these things as well. And I think this new symmetry in anthropology uh, will have enormous consequence politically mm. because it's not just respect, it's just uh, what Anna Tsing called living in the ruins. I mean, how, how do we live in the ruins? How do we share tricks to live in the ruins? Mm. And I think it's a very different type of not hope, of course. It's not as enthusiastic as it was when we were moving to modernization. But it is also the way to counteract uh, what I think is a global worry that people have about the disappearance of the globe and a sort of temptation of a return to the 
a traditional identity politics. I and mean, one of the things I, I, I loved about what you said last night was when you said, you know, we've got this ecological movement and that's branded itself as green. The earth is not green, it's brown. <laughs> and uh, that resonated very much again with this idea that we need to almost kind of Chain, it's like wearing a different pair of glasses. That you know, the land we've we might think we've been dispossessed of the land, but actually it's still there under our feet. But in Australia, of course, that land is very brown, very dry, um, very powdery, and harder to conceive of, I think, than you know, manicured forests and and landscapes that we knew how to map. So it, there's something also about not quite knowing what the map is. The colour of the Green Party is still in dispute. The colour of the Green Party. Well, let's turn to politics. And Clive, if I could ask you, how will the political system cope with having to give voice to the non-human and to the systems and to thinking about how it's going to accommodate, adapt and change? Well, this is the uh, big question, of course. And as I said, we're now entering the Anthropocene, uh, which was announced by Paul Crutzen, the Nobel Prize prize-winning atmospheric chemist in the year 2000. As Bruno said, there's an Anthropocene working group, which is um, very systematically and carefully gathering evidence from a range of scientific disciplines in order to present a case that the International Commission on Stratigraphy should in fact declare that we now have officially entered into a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, to follow the Holocene. And so, the scientists are leading the way, of course. In, 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 uh, I mean, they're doing their science and they're showing what they see, but the political and philosophical implications of what they're doing are vast. Uh, and it's a bit of a cop-out, but I say that uh, I think it will be decades before we understand what it means and undergo the kind of transformation of consciousness that happened, uh, for instance, with the arrival of the Enlightenment. I mean, we tend to think that how we understand ourselves and see the world is kind of just what human beings do, but in fact, it's a very Western and modern form of understanding of our place on the earth. So I think the Anthropocene foreshadows just as radical a change, but it's very hard to see how it will play out. But perhaps one of the signals of, of this fracture that's occurring in politics is the way in which the broad acceptance, uh, growing acceptance since the Enlightenment of scientific knowledge, of scientific wisdom, has been so deeply and profoundly resisted, uh, most obviously through the denial movement, and we see you know, somewhat of a resurgence of it in Australia in recent days, but also the other kinds of denial which many of us, including myself, practice. I mean, it's actually very hard to think or to be aware all day of the kind of climatic transformation that we humans have wrought on the earth. I mean, it's too much of an emotional burden to bear. And so in order to... That's why we need a performance. Yeah. We need a performance. To, to sort of swallow the difficulty of the emotion. You know, we do. Weight and burden. We do. I mean, it, I mean and, and you, you have to ask whether we have the emotional strength to carry uh, this burden and therefore respond to it properly. And so I think a new politics arises, first of all, out of taking on this burden but not being destroyed by it. I mean, I know people have been destroyed by it. So can democratic institutions cope with that level of burden? 
Well, they have to, one way or another. Um, they will have to undergo transformation, I think, because democratic institutions have become sclerotic. Uh, they don't know how to cope with this. They've been very much built on a, a, a modernist, social-only understanding of human beings in their relationship to the natural world. So they will have to undergo profound changes. And so that's why uh, Bruno's uh, experimentation with the Parliament of Things, for instance, and his uh, cop simulation with his students, these kinds of ways of reimagining the way in which uh, democratic politics might work are, are very important. I don't think that necessarily anyone will come across the magic solution, but they're breaking down, perhaps not fast, certainly not fast enough, the, uh, the encrusted understandings of how politics uh, uh, do work to try to open up the possibility for something new. But I think we tend to think about this question of would politics cope in terms of procedure and institution in the way political theorists think about politics, forgetting that politics is always about occupying a land uh, and belonging to a territory. And the problem is which territory do we belong to? The, the idea that we belong to the territory which is drawn and designed by the modernizing product is probably gone because the Anthropocene is a significant, for me, I think, is in another way, that's why I call it a new climatic regime, is the end of a notion of globalization as, as, as a sort of a horizon, as if we were modernizing the planet. We will not modernizing the planet because there is no planet for that dream of a global, so to speak. So the question that people now are asking is how we reinterpret democratic institutions, but also how, on what sort of land and sort of country. And one of the very important things is that people now everywhere uh, seem that it's a global phenomenon uh, wants protection against the global, which is perfectly natural. I mean, it's a perfectly normal demand to be protected. Now, the question is, are you protected because you are uh, behind a border or are you protected because you belong to land? The global is not a land to anyone belong to. So, except, of course, those who say they are globalists, but it's a very, very small sect, so to speak, a very, very small tribe, a very, very tiny group of people, even though it's several million. So I think before we talk about institution of politics, uh, the question is which land? And can we draw the land, which is not the planet, which is not the global uh, horizon? And I think it, it, it is a very important feature, again, where performances and artists are linking hands with activists, uh, with all sorts of things which were neo-traditional, neo-traditional movement, uh, slow, slow food, slow science, there's a slow science movement which interests me a lot, etc., and which is the notion of the return of the notion of a common and the whole philosophy around the notion of common. So there's a myriad of things coming back, which is not about the procedure of democracy, which is about the belonging I was just going to say um, I'm working on a panel for my own panel for the conference, which is on ocean and oceans and performances of the ocean and how the ocean itself performs. And I, uh, one of the people I invited to be on the panel is an atmospheric chemist from here at the university, Robin Schofield. And she goes to Antarctica and looks at the movement of air above the icy ocean in Antarctica. And there are all these different gases that are being emitted 
because of various forms of pollution. And the ways in which they are drawn are very, uh, they have to be coloured, each of these gases, for her to kind of do the interpretation and, and look at the curves of the, of the gases being emitted. Um, and it's incredibly choreographic. Mm. You can't have a better kind of <laughs> sense of what the this this um, and I guess just I'm responding to your thing about territory that there is no there and and then the other aspect about the oceans is that we want to put borders now in the oceans and there's all the laws of the sea defining who owns which bit of the sea but of course the 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 existing laws and the existing frameworks we have for who gets to fish where you know what kinds of mineral deposits under the ocean belong to who are very very contested so we're entering if we're talking about environmental politics it seems we're we're entering into spaces where the very notion of borders between, you know, air and water or parts of an ocean and the things that are in that ocean are very, very much moving all the time. And so, you know, my question for my panel was, you know, does how does the ocean perform and, and how do we understand the choreography of that ocean as a political and aesthetic sphere, you know? So. That's most interesting, Rachel, because... I asked a, a, um, an earth scientist, Jan Zalasiewicz, who's mm. actually the chair of the Anthropocene Working Group, how I would try to persuade people to think about the earth not as a static ball of rock, but as an aggregation of processes, of, of interlocking, constantly transforming processes, transforming quickly or slowly. And he said to me something like, Perhaps you could explain that the Earth is governed in its behaviour by the two great fluids, the atmosphere and the ocean, which are constantly in change, uh, undergoing change. The atmosphere, obviously, on an hourly basis, but the oceans too. Um, you know, there's no patch of water stays the same. And in fact, climate change is arguably more about what happens in the oceans. I mean, more heat and indeed more carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm is stored uh, in the oceans. But the amazing thing about the Anthropocene is that now the Earth scientists are saying that the slowest moving component of the Earth system, that is the crust of the Earth and indeed what is beneath the crust, is now starting to be affected by human activity as well. So, for example, when um, as the Greenland ice sheet melts because it's on solid Earth below sea level, but as it melts, that earth rebounds, it rises up, uh, and therefore the, the crust of the earth itself is being transformed by human activity. So the whole earth as, you know, as a system, as an earth system, is now being influenced by human activity, and of course in ways that we barely understand, let alone can we control. And Bruno last night talked about the need for a dermatology of the earth, he said, <laughs> because we live on the thin skin of the planet. I'd like that includes um, um, earth tectonics. Absolutely. I'd like to move to something you said uh, famously. You talked about the Australian syndrome. You did this in a 2014 lecture at the Royal Danish Academy of Science in Copenhagen. You were critical in that speech of the Australian government for taking what was in your view or is in your view an unrealistic approach to climate policy. And you went on to characterise the Australian syndrome as, and I quote, voluntarily sleepwalking toward catastrophe. So what I want to ask you, <laughs> since you're here in Australia, is, is this a local phenomenon or are you 
here reflecting on the way many Western democracies have responded to climate questions and, in a sense, what follows from this syndrome? Well, it's a general syndrome, but uh, I cited this, I think it was at the worst moment and learning actually from my friend Clive Hamilton's reaction here to the prime, former prime minister's decision about getting rid of a scientific scientific establishment working on, on, on science climate. And I apologize, I have nothing to do with Australian politics, I apologize. But I think it's, I was just mentioning a global phenomenon, which is we are moving as this discussion bear witness to um, from politics to cosmopolitics. That is, it's rare in a policy uh, radio talk show, I think, to talk about the ocean and the rivers and, and the uh, nitrogen cycle, etc. And yet, this is what we have to do. So, this move from politics to cosmopolitics, moving from politics to cosmopolitics through poetics, is, I think, a very uh, typical thing of the time. But it's slightly difficult to follow. So, there are some who says, let's keep Let's stay modern, let's stay humans, let's stay in nature, let's stay in the Holocene, and après moi, le déluge, as we say in, in French, after me, the deluvian, or whatever is the expression in, in English. So this, this is a sort of, uh, in a way, uh, I think, uh, as Clive said, it is a normal reaction, because the news are terrifying. And, and they terrify us in the bad way, but they, they make us important. We, we are overloaded by it. And that's, for me, why the, the art is so, so important, because either you get it and you are terrorized, and then you are important because you are terrorized. And you need something which thing only the arts can do, which is to de-dramatize, because it's beautiful and fun and dangerous and all sorts of things, and re-dramatize. And, and that's the, the way to move out of a perverse situation of being uh, fascinated, being completely uh, over, overwhelmed by the... It's, it's a bit like if, if you learn a, an enormous guilt that you have committed without even realizing it, what would you do with it? I mean, you are burdened with it and you do nothing with it. So you, you need a way to shift away from the burden. And um, I think that's, that's what the arts are doing. It's the, the poetics of cosmopolitics, if I can say. And one of the parts of the project that's attracted a lot of discussion, your project, is around finding new ways of describing this reality and bringing them home. You talked about a new climatic regime, but you've also written extensively about eco-theology, and we don't normally associate eco-theology with public policy outcomes, but can you express a little about why we need a new language to understand and make sense of this moment? Well, theology plays a big role because uh, the question is, how do we get the news? If the news, that, the news, the bad news coming from the sciences is heard by people who are offshore, who are in a sort of other planet, um, they have been saved, let's say, they are offshore, they are literally offshore, or as I say, they are beyond the apocalypse, they have been uh, definitely o- sort of out of this uh, uh, planet. All these news have no influence on them. Because you cannot say the, the sort of climate to what I call climate to quietism, um, Clive was alluding to, that is the fact that we know and we don't do, is not the lack of knowledge. I mean, the knowledge is there. Every, I mean, we are surrounded, we are actually uh, inundated by, by information. So there must be something deeper. And I think one of the many layers of our quiescence is this idea that we are uh, the modernist, let's say to use my language, as post-apocalyptic. They are beyond the apocalypse. Uh, it's very important in the American tradition, of course. They are the ones who are 
sort of the other side of the apocalypse. So the news arrive and they say, yes, but it's not us. I mean, there's no two apocalypse. There's only one. And we are beyond that. We, we are, it's our right. We are, we are modern forever. And when you hear all these news, they come, but they, they don't sink in because they, they are there in the, in the offshore and the news are for something else, basically. I think there's a great discrepancy. This is why I insist on the fact that the whole question of politics is where we are. Which epoch, the Anthropocene, and where? If we are on Earth, it's not the globe. It has nothing to do with the globe. It's something else. If we are in creation, this is the argument of Pope Francis. It's different, again. Rachel, in a final question, if I may. In the discussion that followed the public lecture, one of the respondents was very keen to bring this back to political categories and, and raise questions about are these instruments that are being discussed uh, human excluding people of colour, it was an attempt to say this is, you're making this a scientific argument and really under, underlying it all are still the same humanist questions about people and politics. How's this playing out in the conference? I think it's an ongoing tension. You know, the, the question of who is a subject and who gets to speak is one that identity politics is need to play out pretty hard. So if you're a woman, you need to have a right to speak. If you're an Indigenous person, you need a right to speak. A black person needs a right to speak. Disabled people need rights to speak. And and actually the conference will enable those people to have voices. I think um, Bruno's proposal, though, is that identity politics may only just get us so far if we need to have non-human actors also in play because we all might have needs for um, shelter and there are things perhaps about shelter or about you know food survival that will impact on people across those categories of identity politics and and identity politics as we might know has played out I think in a kind of fractious way inside nation states up until now it's been an important mobilising tool and one does need to take positions, I think, from the stance of an identity. Um, but I think the, the, the proposition in a way is a mind-bending one. How do you move from an identity politics to an affiliative politics or a, a kind of more striated sense of how you connect, you know, from one identity category to another identity category? Um Richard Franklin, again, this morning just said, look, Indigenous people are being asked to carry multiple burdens every day from the political system, from the prison system, from the health system, from the education system, in which they don't feel safe. Um, and therefore, the question of being asked to carry responsibility for the climate is yet another kind of political burden in that identity category. Um, so, I, you know, I think what we might say about identity politics is it's a way of thinking through the differential responsibilities. Uh, we all have responsibilities, but maybe not acknowledging that some people's differentiated positions put them in a position where they need to argue harder or someone else needs to share some of the burden. So, you know, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a tension and it, it's coming up in some of the papers. I mean, we had a, a paper this morning about the Maldives, which is an island nation, which is at risk of disappearing into the ocean. They've put a whole lot of concrete blocks, apparently, around the border of the capital city um, in order to prevent inundation from the waves. But they've also just had a political coup that has prevented the people from speaking on the Maldives. 
and the new regime of power there has decided they will make their own decisions about who gets to sink or swim, I guess, in that ocean. So We will all come to Australia. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's, you, you know, so political systems seem to implode almost at the point at which the climate starts to inundate you. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. And, and Clive, if I may turn to you for a final question, it, it follows this politics question. Bruno's argued that national borders become irrelevant once we go into this conversation. Do we have the international systems we need to address and ameliorate in the way you hope is possible? And if not, what's missing? Well, I actually think we do. Um, I think we do have the international institutions that are capable of responding. Of course, one can argue that they've been done so very inadequately, as indeed they have. But uh, this is, as I say, why, you know, at Paris, uh, at the COP uh, last December, I thought there was a really significant shift in the global zeitgeist. But we also have to re recognise, uh, responding to Bruno's point about um, which territory, that we're facing a kind of backlash to that, a sort of rise of nativism and uh, people actually putting up barriers not to uh, keep the sea out but to keep other people out. And, of course, Brexit is the most dramatic recent, uh, Indeed, recent yeah. instance mm -hmm. uh, of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of, and Australia's... Um, Australia's uh, uh, policies, you know, uh, of uh, border security, uh, as we call it, is a similar kind of a, uh, expression. So we've got this great tension, I think, uh, happening around the world. But just let me finish by responding uh, to Rachel's comment about identities and uh, allowing people to speak out of their own situation. Um, I think all of that's true, but I also think that there is now in the Anthropocene, and this is a very recent phenomenon, like within the last few years, I think there is, as some like Deepesh Chakrabarti have uh, argued, the Chicago historian, actually uh, PhD from ANU, interestingly enough, uh, and, and Deepesh is a post-colonial historian, so he comes from a radical background, but he has argued that we need to start thinking as a species mm -hmm. as well as... Mm -hmm in terms of our individual nationalities, identities, genders, and so on and so forth. And him, I agree with him fundamentally. I don't think we should speak. Uh, need to think of ourselves as a species. I think that descends into biologism. But I do think we need to begin starting to think of ourselves in terms of humankind and humankind's impact on the natural world and the responsibility that now devolved to humankind to care for rather than continue to neglect the earth. So I think that will be part of the shift in consciousness, if you like, that will occur over the next decades. I put it this way, if we don't have that, then we're all toast. <laughs> I think, um, yes, I mean, I was thinking, I mean, performance artists have done a lot in the space of bio art, you know, thinking about cellular mutation. They've also... You know, the 20th century performance artists were working a lot with machinic technologies. And I think what is happening now with performance artists in the 21st century is that much greater sense of, yes, less arguing for the politics of one's identity and and even, you know, the trans identities that might be there, but more these kind of affiliative and collective movements that performance can also make possible. So that sense of, you know, a shared mobilisation of affect or a shared sense of continuities. Um, and that's one of the, I think, signs of hope 
in performance. So let me use that fascinating insight to ask Bruno a final question. Bruno, you've written about Thomas Hobbes and his political theory and the image of the Leviathan as encompassing humanity in a single person and then a vision of the world. And you've offered a very different account of how the world now is and you've used art as the medium to do that through the shows that you've curated. I'd like to ask you, why art? Why this way of speaking to these issues? Why this way of interrogating politics? It's not the art as, uh, because the artist would have special uh, sort of a domain. It's the art as a skill pushing the representation away from the sort of cliched ways of being a politician or cliched way of being a human or human subject, which is a question that Clive is, is talking about in this uh, return of a species or return of a, of a human race, would be the expression in the old tradition of a world race. So it's just that scientists, as well as artists, as well as activists, are actually pushing the limit of representation anywhere. And anyway, I would say. So uh, it's not the art as, as, because you are an artist, you would be better placed. It's just the art as, as a way of, of, of shifting uh, the, the limit of, of representation, which is interesting. And after all, that, the word representation is completely tripartite. I mean, it works for science and technology, for art and for politics. So this is, I think, the inescapable conclusion of the sort of thing we discuss. You have to change the representation. For today's discussion on the Parliament of Things, may I particularly thank our distinguished international guest, Professor Bruno Latour. Thank you and goodbye. And I'd like to acknowledge as well Professor Rachel Fencham. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. And Professor Clive Hamilton. It's been a delight, thank you. And thanks for your company. I'm Glenn Davis. Catch you next time on The Policy Shop. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hiasey and Heather Jarvis with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. You can listen to The Policy Shop at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.